Hi, I'm Joy Roberts, and I'm one of the co-founders of an organization called Joy of It and JOI Frenzy. And I am a social and emotional learning program designer that equips adults, and in particular her students, kindergarten through eighth grade, with emotional intelligence skills. And this process is called social and emotional learning. And what it really is, is God's design for healthy relationships and strong communities. And so through social and emotional competence, we are actually able to build skills and develop skills like perseverance and resilience to face adversity. We can learn how to handle conflict, deal with relational pressure. We have and increase our capacity to stand up for what we believe in and really form close, secure, meaningful relationships that can last and endure just the challenges of life. And so it's really through this lens, through emotional competence that I'm going to be sharing today. Um, and if you want to connect with the work that we do through Joy of It or JOI Frenzy, I invite you to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Joy of It or at Frenzy.joi. Um, we are all about community and connection, and we would love to hear from you. So again, if you want to partner with the work we're doing or um, engage with the work we're doing, I invite you to follow us on those social media outlets. And so today, I realize that we are not going to solve all the world problems. Uh, we're going to be talking specifically about pain points. I'm going to be sharing about mother wounds. Um, but really I'm talking about trauma and wounding and relational wounds that I think each of us carry at some level or capacity. And so I think that this conversation is applicable for all of us. And as I begin to prepare, I have been praying for each of us individually that as you engage in this conversation today, as you listen in, and as you gather with people, wherever that may be, you may be um, in a space alone processing, but I want you to know today that you're part of a larger community that is processing this together. Uh, or you may be gathering with a group of friends uh, processing this. And so we're in the midst of COVID-19, and so there's a lot of physical distancing that hap is happening. And I want to remind us that we're really in this together uh, and that you really are not alone. And so my prayer has been is that each of us individually would begin to have new levels of breakthrough, that our perspectives would begin to shift, and that you and I would begin to walk in new layers of freedom from our past hurts, past relationship wounds, past pain points, um, that today's conversation would foster in us more confidence about who we are in Christ, and that each of us would leave this conversation today less broken and more whole. And I know what most of you know as well, and that is that our pain tends to isolate and discourage us. It actually tends to separate us. But today I'm reminding us that we're actually gathering collectively to encourage each other to cheer, cheer each other on in this process. And this process that I keep referring to is this lifelong process of becoming less broken and more whole as we live out our faith, as we press into who Christ has designed and created us to be. I recently watched the movie, uh, the Mr. Rogers movie, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And one of his quotes that stood out to me is, there is no normal life that is pain-free. And I think when we approach pain or discouragement or trauma, we enter in as if it's happening only to us. And so again, I'm uh, challenging us to see how we're working through this together. And so as Mr. Rogers said, there is no normal life that is pain-free. He said, it's the very wrestling with our problems that can be the impetus for our growth. And so I love that that um, comment by him because it enters us into this space to reframe how we look at our past 
the challenging and the painful parts of our past. Number one, it's normal. Pain is a normal part of this human thing called life. Secondly, there is a process that allows us to grow and mature. And so that's the process that we're talking about. That's how we become less broken and more whole, is to really enter into this process. And today we're doing that together. And I want to... Um, really introduce the word, a word, that I think is going to anchor us in this conversation today, and that word is resistance. And so when you think about the word resistance, do you think that it's a positive or negative thing? Do you think it's a, is resistance good or bad? And so wherever you're at, this may feel kind of odd, I want to invite you to put your hands together, so palms facing together, elbows out, so you're kind of in a funky uh, prayer position. And envision that you had a book or a piece of paper between the two palms of your hand and you're pressing your hands together firmly, aggressively, <laughs> gently, whatever you want it to be. But what you feel as you push your right hand against your left hand and your left hand against your right hand is resistance. And I want to challenge us today because how we, review, how we view resistance is really important. Our belief about resistance is the lens, as you keep pressing, our belief about resistance is the lens we interpret pain, trauma, and relationship wounds. And it leaves us with the question, so do we believe that resistance is good or bad? Do we believe that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? We've heard that before. Do we believe that? Or do we believe that what doesn't kill you actually weakens you and breaks you down over time? And I want to I say today that I think that there's two sides of resistance. I think that resistance can be good and resistance can be bad. My husband, when he was in high school, he has an older brother, and his brother had gone off to college. And when his brother came home over Christmas break or, or the summer, one of those, his brother had been lifting weights for months. He'd been doing resistance training. And so when he came home, he invited my husband to join him in this resistance training. And so right out of the blocks, my husband entered into this resistance training session with Augusto. He actually, like maxed out every one of his muscle groups. And so he bench pressed to failure. He did triceps to failure. He did squats to failure. Like he maxed out every uh, weightlifting technique that he engaged in to the point where he, of failure. And if any of you have lifted weights before, you can imagine what the week that ensued was like. I actually think he had rhabdo, and if you don't know what rhabdo is, you can Google that on the internet. But he was telling me that it was so incredibly painful that when he got up to take a shower, he literally could not lift his arms to wash his hair. Brushing his teeth was painful. He couldn't eat the pancakes that his mom had made him for breakfast. Like The pain was so great that it actually immobilized him and kept him from being able to do just the normal things in life. And when I think about that, that's what childhood trauma felt like for me. And so I had traumatic experiences as a child. I had wounding that came from people who should have loved me the most but didn't. And so out of that space, that became such a point of resistance in my life that I, it was like a wall of resistance. It actually kept me from, from just be living in the fullness of life. It kept me, it immobilized me from being emotionally, relationally, and sometimes physically engaged. But, and this is a big but, as I have been in the process of working through these pain points, identifying my emotions, calling out lies, entering into counseling, as I've been doing the work to work through these pain points and these areas of trauma, I have discovered that the best parts of me have actually come from these places. So my husband, he went on to um, play basketball in college, and so lifting weights became a regular part of his routine. And the thing is, is that he got stronger and stronger over time. 
And so when I'm talking about resistance today, when I'm talking about working through pain points, it's actually building our capacity to do hard things. And each time we work through a pain point, a relational wound, trauma, we become stronger. It gives us greater capacity individually, and I'm going to talk about how that also benefits not just us individually, but also benefits our communities. And so today we're talking about resistance, again, that comes through relational wounds and trauma. And I want to acknowledge that trauma comes in many forms. The patterns are similar, the the processes we walk through are similar, but trauma comes wrapped in many different packages. And so I'm going to be talking specifically about some mother wounds that I carried from an early age. They're some of the most um, prominent points of trauma that I had early on in life. But I want to recognize that you may be listening today and have experienced abuse from a spouse, a boyfriend, a friend, a coworker. You may have had a traumatic experience like a car accident. That, that causes anxiety or this deep wrestling or uneasiness. You may have witnessed someone else getting hurt. All of these things create points of trauma. I'm actually speaking with my team, the Joy of It team, in the next week about trauma and racism. And so speaking specifically to uh, my friends who have experienced trauma from racism, from systemic racism, from from uh, racist acts towards them indire- directly or indirectly through their community, that trauma comes from many different sources. And specifically, regarding mother wounds, you may have, have been brought up without uh, a nurturing home. Maybe you felt a lack of per- protection, so you experience sexual or physical abuse. You may not have been affirmed or validated as a child. You were not given a sense of identity and a core of who you are. Some of us have had parents who are self-consumed, who are narcissistic, or who simply um, ushered in neglect or abandonment. And so again, we are not here today to compare to compare our wounds or to judge, but to really sit in the space and to come into the space with authenticity and a willingness to process this together, to enter into this conversation realizing that uh, our pain points impact not only us individually, but impact our communities. And in the same way, our greatest healing is going to come within the context of community. It's where our greatest pain points come from relationships, but our greatest healing also comes by being in community together. And again, our trauma and our pain points tend to drive us away from each other. That's the enemy's design. But this is a space for us to come together and acknowledge them and say, let's be in the process of healing together. And so, as I share with you today, my early years began with wounding that came from um, mother wounds. And so when I was uh, four years old, my mom died in a car accident. And in my childlike mind, and even as I grew up, I internalized a belief that my mom left me that she abandoned me when I needed her most, that she wasn't there for me when I, need, when I needed her. And over the course of my lifetime, I've longed for her. I longed for her when I started my period. <laughs> I mean, there were just these critical places in my life where I needed my mother, and she wasn't there. And so I, from a very young age, begin to believe a lie that I was unwanted and that I was unloved. And so that's not something that I openly acknowledged or nurtured. It was just a belief. And then a few years later, my dad remarried. And he remarried a woman who could have loved me, who should have loved me, who has the capacity to love, but she didn't. She was actually physically and emotionally and spiritually abusive. And so when I look back on that season of my life, I realize that she robbed me 
of my childhood. She robbed me of security and self, self-worth. And what really happened is that she reinforced the lie that I was unwanted and unlovable. And so as I process and I look back on that, that was a starting place for me. That was an entry point into my life that utter, ushered in self-destruction. And I think, I think we can all relate to this, that children who do not know that they are loved, who do not know their value and their worth, they respond very differently than children, than young girls who feel loved, cared for, and valued. And what I've realized in looking back on these early points of trauma and pain in my life is that these have had a ripple effect on every other relationship that I have had. They have impacted every relationship that I have ever had. And so as we're talking about entering into process, it's important for us to enter into the process of healing. Because if we don't, these pain points are going to continue to cause collateral damage in our life. So when I was in my early 20s, I had a come to Jesus moment. I had a professor in college who invited me to go to a teeny tiny church in the middle of nowhere, Colfax, Washington. And I ended up sitting in the back pew next to my boyfriend who has now been my husband for 25 years. And I surrendered. I acknowledged that I could, I had reached the end of myself that I could not go on. This is where the resistance in my life was so great that it was overwhelming me. Overwhelming me. I actually didn't know if I was going to recover. Like I, I felt like literally immobilized. And it was at that point that I began this journey with Jesus of becoming less broken and more whole. And really, He began to heal things in me initially, and then He put me on this journey in this process of being healed over time. And I really want to emphasize the process because it takes courage to work through pain points because once you get through one pain point, inevitably there are more to come. And so from this lens, I want to focus the rest of our time together on three different areas. Three different areas of resistance that I have experienced over my personal journey. And those three different areas are unforgiveness. This is something, an area of resistance that continually stops me from living in the fullness that God has for me in my life. The second one is despair. Despair is something that sidelines me, that takes me out of this race called life, that leaves me again feeling immobilized. And I want to talk about these in a way that we can work through them with the expectation that we can be stronger, that we will eventually be able to accomplish more in working through them than we could if they didn't actually exist. And the third thing I want to talk about that gives us the capacity, that has given me the capacity to work through unforgiveness, to press through despair, is hope. Hope is such a little word, but it is such a powerful word. And so today, when we wrap up, I want to anchor us in to a word of hope. Because I think that from hope, we have encouragement. From hope, we have um, the confidence to move forward even when it's painful. Through hope, the Lord gives us the courage to do something that may feel hard or impossible. And so it's from that place that I want to enter into this conversation. And I specifically want to unpack Psalm 23. And so many of you, as you're listening today, are very familiar with Psalm 23. It's one of the most iconic passages in the Old Testament. Many scholars believe that it was written later in David's life, after he had been a shepherd, after he had defeated Goliath and become king of Israel, after he had committed adultery and murdered his friend and had a fallout with his family. And so again, I love that scripture is so real. 
you know, I think we have this illusion of perfection, but when you start to actually unpack Scripture and look at the narratives, you see that every person represented in Scripture has these highs and these lows. You have these ideas of perfection, and then you have the reality of sin and brokenness and hurt and wounding all wrapped together. And so David, in writing this psalm, I think captures the highs and lows of life, and he speaks wisdom and he speaks encouragement to us. And so my hope for today is that those of you who already have this passage uh, memorized, committed to memory, grew up in church, that the Lord would... would um, Breathe just a fresh word of encouragement through it uh, to you today. And for those of you who have not committed this to memory, um, I want to encourage you today to consider uh, starting a journal, writing down Psalm 23, this very poetic passage of Scripture, committing it to memory and dwelling on it and allowing it really to be an anchor for you, your soul as you go through life, as you process, process relationship wounds and other points of trauma. And what I love, I started out by telling you that uh, I teach social and emotional learning competencies to adults and, and primarily to teachers and students within a school setting. And what, what always amazes me about, and the beauty of God's Word, is that this passage highlights emotional competencies. And so in this passage, you're going to see self-awareness and you're going to see self-management. You're going to have a view for perspective taking. And so it's just this beautiful invitation for self-reflection. And so with that said, I want to open us in prayer and I want to jump right into this beautiful poetic passage of scripture together. Lord, I just I thank you for being present today. I thank you for every person that you have gathered within earshot today. I thank you for the community that is gathering together to lean in to this idea of resistance and this idea of becoming less broken and more whole as you work out as your spirit works in us and through us. And so today, Lord, I just we just invite you into the space. We invite you into this conversation. Lord, I ask that my words would be your words, that you would speak to the heart of every person who's listening today, and that there would be a new level of healing, that there would be a new level of growth, that there would be a new level of encouragement today. And so, Lord, bless this time. We ask that you speak to us each individually and collectively in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you, my friends. I just want to say thank you again for gathering today. I'm excited to hear what the Lord has to say to us. So, if you have your Bibles and haven't already opened them to Psalm 23, I invite you to do so. Pop open your laptop, your app on your phone, or your physical Bible. And again, we're entering into Psalm 23, one of the most iconic passages of uh, all of the Old Testament. And this passage starts out with, and again, this is David speaking. And David is saying, The Lord, Yahweh, the maker and creator of heaven and earth, is my shepherd. I shall not want... He makes me lie down in green pastures. And so as we're entering into this, it, it's this picture of the Lord is not making you lay down. The Lord is actually, it carries this idea, the Lord is making it possible for you to lie down in green pastures. And this idea of green pastures carries the essence of satisfaction and contentment because sheep could not lie down and rest unless they were satisfied and content. And so David is saying, the Lord, the maker and creator of heaven and earth, he makes it possible for me to lie down and to be content. David goes on to say, he leads me beside still waters, not fast moving waters that can sweep you away, but by still waters, by waters of rest. He goes on to say, he restores or he refreshes my soul. He turns my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. And why does he lead you in paths of righteousness? For his name's sake. And so this passage is speaking very personally 
David is speaking very personally. He's calling the Lord his shepherd. He doesn't say that the Lord is a shepherd, or even that the Lord, the maker and creator of heaven and earth, like Yahweh, he doesn't say these are names for God. He doesn't say that God is the shepherd. But he's speaking how God meets us very personally and very individually. And so this conversation that we're starting today has an individual component. It's reflective of this work that we need to do. He's anchoring us in this passage in who we are in Christ and what our identity is. And so he's inviting us to practice some self-awareness about who we are and who we belong to. And so I think that in our faith, we often enter into this conversation with an individualistic perspective, realizing that God wants to do some work in and of us first. And sometimes we stop there. But I want to highlight the idea that our faith, even though it starts with us individually, our faith is actually lived out in the context of community. And so when you think about a sheep and a shepherd, there's always a flock. There's always a fold. There's always a herd. There's always a community. And so as we're talking about working through resistance, about becoming less broken and more whole, it certainly is going to benefit us individually. And I want to remind us that it is going to greatly benefit our families, our churches, our workplaces, and the communities that we live in. And so as we begin to enter into this work, into this process, it's for us, but it's really for all of us. It has this communal impact. And so I think when we begin to talk about emotional intelligence, the, uh, the foundational component of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. Understanding who you are individually, understanding your strengths and weaknesses, understanding who, you're, who you are, what is your specific identity. And when you have the capacity to do that, you are then able to be socially aware. That's another foundational component of emotional competence, is your ability to not only know who you are, but to see how you fit into the collective community, to see the strengths of others, to understand how you can cover the weaknesses and support others, to practice perspective taking, empathy, and compassion. And it all starts with us knowing who we are in Christ. And from that place, flows out our ability to impact our communities. And so again, being self-aware and socially aware. And so I think we enter into Psalm 23 from this perspective, understanding that what affects one person is going to affect all of us. And we see this littered across the pages of Scripture. In fact, Paul does a beautiful job unpacking that in 1 Corinthians 12, in Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. He paints this picture of the human body and how we're interconnected and we need each other. And so I'm just anchoring us into this image because when I talk about unforgiveness, the resistance of unforgiveness... What I have learned in the last 25 years that the Lord is leading me from, from the rushing waters of unforgiveness, that he's guiding me, that he's walking me to places where I can forgive those who have deeply wounded and hurt me. And so that started for me at a very young age. I had series of other broken and failed relationships. And out of that unforgiveness flowed a whole bunch of friends. Unforgiveness has a whole bunch of friends, and those friends for me were anger, bitterness, and rage. And so when I was growing up, I had a ton of anger. I had a ton of rage that would flow out of me. If someone pushed me slightly, I would literally lose my mind. And it's because I had not walked through the process of forgiveness. I had not forgiven the woman who had robbed me of my childhood. I had not forgiven the individuals in my life who physically um, assaulted and, and abused me. And it was destroying me. It was destroying me from the inside out. And so I told you in my early 20s that I had a come to Jesus moment where the Lord invited me to green pastures. He walked me beside quiet waters. And as I followed after him, 
several years later, and I want to emphasize it was several years later, I entered into my first season of forgiveness where I actually looked at two of the main oppressors in my life who um, did some really deep and heavy damage in my soul. And he walked me to a place of forgiving them. He did that through his word. As I began to read into his word and understand his truth and the character of Christ, I began to trust Jesus with my pain points that, that vengeance was his and not mine. Uh, it was through worship music. It was through conversations through friends. And it was from seeing the impact that unforgiveness was having on my life, and not only on my life, but on my relationships. And so the Lord began to work, walk me through that process. And at the age of about 26, something broke open in me. And I was able to release my abusers and to forgive them and to stand in a place of peace in ways that I had never been able to experience before. I was on a camping trip. This was uh, rafting down a river. This was a handful of years ago. And I was sitting around a campfire at night, and the guide told me the story of this woman who, once uh, the campfire was over and she was heading back to her tent to go to bed, she stopped off to brush her teeth next to the river's edge. And as she was brushing her teeth in the dark of the night, she slipped and she fell into the rushing water and thankfully the guide was able to hear her and she had a headlamp on but literally she was being swept down the river in the middle of the night with no flotation devices with no support and the guides had to like jump into the raft and go out and rescue her and this has been a picture for me of what unforgiveness has felt like that I often have found myself, it wasn't just when I was 26, I tend to come back to this place where I'm standing on this slippery slope and I fall into the raging waters of unforgiveness and bitterness creeps back into my life. Fear creeps back into my life. Insecurity, this, this raging anger um, bubbles over in me and I need to be rescued. And what I have learned in the past 25 years is that I cannot rescue myself from unforgiveness. And I have tried. But what that has required for me is for the Lord to come and to pluck me out of the rushing waters and to put my feet on a firm foundation. And it's required me to walk through this process multiple times. My abuser is also my brother's mom. And my brother is one of my very, very best friends in life, and I love him very, very, very much. And he still has a relationship with his mom, my abuser. She moved out of town and has lived out of state for years and years and years. And a few years ago, she moved back to be close to my brother. And this is after I've walked through years of forgiveness. This is years, 25 years of walking with the Lord. And the resistance of unforgiveness came up again. And what it was going to cost me was my relationships. And so I just want to invite you, if you're struggling with unforgiveness, that what the enemy is doing is he's robbing you of being in right relationships with God. And with people, with your people, some of your most important relationships. Unforgiveness impacted my marriage. It impacted my friendships. It actually, my inability to trust women has kept me for years, the front part of my life. I avoided women like the plague. I avoided women because of those pain points were so incredibly strong. And they kept me from the fullness of relationship that God has for me and he has for you. And so I want to encourage you that as you peel back the layers, as you look at wounds and you look at pain points, to ask the Lord, Lord, how do you want to heal and restore me? What parts of my life need to be addressed so that I can live in the fullness of what you have for me? And invite him to uproot any unforgiveness in your life. And I want to say I get the fact that anger, anger and rage for me was a self-defense mechanism. It made me feel safe and it made me feel protected. 
And those things were true, but it was literally destroying me and my relationships from the inside out. And I also want to point out that when you forgive someone, forgiveness and reconciliation are two very different things. And so we often hear this, but forgiveness truly is for us. Reconciliation is something we do together. I am reconciled with my brother. I am reconciled with um, my family, but I'm not reconciled with my abuser because there's never been an acknowledgement and there's not space for that. And so even though I have forgiven her, I have boundaries in place. And the Lord gives me the freedom to have boundaries on who gets to come into my inner circle. And so I have boundaries in place. And I just want to encourage you as you walk through forgiveness, that it's not a justification of the pain or the trauma, but it's an acknowledgement of it. And it allows you and I to walk in freedom and to trust God to reconcile in His timing. And that may not be here in this space on earth. So again, unforgiveness. Um, Next, I want to talk about the resistance of despair, how despair can immobilize us. And I want to talk specifically about how important it is for us to recognize despair because despair manifests itself in so many different ways. But if we don't recognize it, then it will manage us. But if we do recognize it, we can manage it. And so I want to jump into the next part of Psalm 23. Psalm 23 goes on to say, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so here, David's taking us back to where he started. And so we're in the middle of this poetic passage. And David began with God being the maker and creator of heaven and earth. And that Yahweh is with us. And now he's reminding us that even though you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that God is with you. Even in this space that he has not left you, he has not failed you, he has not abandoned you, he is actually right there with you in the midst of this space. And I always come back to the picture that it's not called the valley of death. We are not walking through the valley of death. We're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And so often we stand in the shadow of death. And so I want to acknowledge that pain, again, this is back to the Mr. Rogers quote, that pain is a normal part of life. Valleys are a normal part of life. And it's this idea that we are going to walk through them. And when we ask the question, how do we walk through the valleys? How do we work through the areas of resistance? And I want to bring us back to verse 1, Psalm 23, where God is called the shepherd. And in Hebrew, the word shepherd here is actually a verb. And so what this passage is telling us is that God is in the act of shepherding us. And so it's, what does a shepherd do? Well, a shepherd is with you. He makes it possible for you to lie down and have contentment. He leads you beside calm waters. He moves you away from the rushing waters of unforgiveness and of despair. He guides you. He turns you. He restores you. The Lord is shepherding you. And what I've learned in this process of working through resistance and pain points is that it's so important to acknowledge when you are in the valley. Because when you are in the valley, there is this hope, and we're going to get to hope, my friends. There is this hope that we are going to get to the other side. And I have a friend, Dr. Marcella Chiromo, that pointed out it's so important to acknowledge the challenging things in your life. Because when you get through them and have acknowledged that they're hard and challenging, it gives you this self-awareness. It's actually called self-efficacy, this belief that you can actually do hard things. And so from an emotional competence place, it's so important for us to acknowledge the painful moments. And I want to suggest to us that as we look back on our lives and we see how we have worked through the hard, the challenging, and the painful, that how God has given us the capacity to move through these, that he's been faithful to us, that he has placed people and circumstances and tools to help us get through them, that these actually become monuments. Our testimony is that we have worked through 
the challenging, that we have worked through the difficult. And when God does this in our life, these become monuments of his faithfulness. And I always say we need to look back and polish the monuments of his faithfulness in our life because they actually give us the courage and the strength to continue to do hard things, to continue to overcome. And so when I think about despair, what despair has been for me, I, despair has a whole bunch of friends too, and they have been, um, they have been suicidal thoughts. Despair has come in the form of depression. It's come in the form of anxiety. It has felt like a weight. And if I had to sum up what despair has felt like in me, and again, this is a trigger. This is an Achilles heel for me. And I think as we work through trauma, that despair is often a knee-jerk reaction. And so what this has felt like me is a weight and a heaviness, and it has actually robbed me of hope. And so when I think, what is the antidote to despair? What is the antidote to unforgiveness? We're going to anchor back into hope. And so as I've worked through despair, depression, anxiety, that has required me to acknowledge it, number one. And when you acknowledge your pain points, it allows you to manage your pain points. And I've been able to do some of that work by just processing my emotions, my feelings, identifying lies, replacing them with truths. It's also allowed me to identify when I need a counselor when I need somebody to step in the deep waters with me, when I need someone to hop in a raft and come pluck me out of the raging waters. There have been times in my life where I have needed medication. There have been times in my life where I needed to be really honest with myself and with other people so that I wouldn't get stuck in a place of despair and discouragement. And so again, that required me to be honest with myself and to be honest with other people. And when I recognized my emotions and all that was attached to that, it allowed me to manage my pain points so that my pain points did not manage me. And I'm going to say it again. This is a process. This is a process I continually enter in and out of. And I want to conclude as we begin to wrap up with Psalm 23, the end of Psalm 23 the final passages of Psalm 23. And these verses are packed with the spirit of hope and encouragement. And so as you open your Bibles, you can read with me. It says, You have prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And so this table that David is talking about is a table of victory. And so it is a table where a battle has been won And it's a celebration table. And yet this table has been been prepared when you're still in the presence of your enemies. (laughs) And I love this picture because I think we, again, have this illusion of perfection. But we're not going to reach a place of perfection. All battles will not be won. All victories will not be accomplished today. But we're in the process and that the Lord has prepared before us a table of victory even though we still have enemies, even though we still face opposition, even though we still have pain points. A table of victory has been set before us. This passage goes on to say, You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Oil in Scripture is a picture of God appointing or assigning somebody to a specific purpose. And so when you think about King David, who wrote this psalm, the prophet Samuel went to David and he anointed his head with oil to be, what was the purpose of that? So that he would be appointed, that he had an assignment to be the future king of Israel. And so he was anointed with oil. In other passages of scripture, you see that oil represents the Holy Spirit. And so this idea that God has appointed each one of us, and so I want you to look at your friend, if you're with your friend, and say, God has a purpose for your life. This is a passage of scripture that is reminding us that God has a specific assignment for your life. We have a purpose, and our pain has not disqualified us from that purpose. God has an assignment for us. My friend Mary says that our pain is often the birthplace of our purpose. And so again, let me say that our pain is often a birthplace of our purpose. This is the seed of hope. 
that God is going to take the good and the bad and the ugly and he's going to use it in our lives not only for our good but for his glory that is going to be a testimony to others that is going to be a word of encouragement to others and he has anointed you and he has appointed you for a specific purpose in a specific time in a specific space and he will not waste anything in your life. And he goes on to say, he says, my cup overflows. And in this passage, um, it captures this idea of a Near East tradition where you were welcome at the table as long as your cup was being filled. And so here's a picture where a victory table has been prepared for you. Your cup is overflowing. You have an invitation. You have a seat at the table. And it's overflowing. This reminds me of the woman at the well when Jesus meets her and says, If you drink of the living water that I offer you, it will well up in you to a spring of everlasting life. And so it's this whole picture of being filled perpetually and continually to have this filling. And so again, it's this this picture of the victory that will come. It's a picture of the process that we're in. Even though our enemies have not been eradicated, even though pain has not been eradicated, that there is purpose and there, there's a process in that. And, and Psalm 23 ends with this crescendo. It says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the word follow here in Hebrew is actually much stronger it's much stronger. And so the word follow in Hebrew means to chase after or to pursue. So let me read it again. Surely the goodness, surely goodness and mercy will pursue me, will chase after me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Remember at the beginning of Psalm 23, the Lord was leading us, He was guiding us. And now at the end of Psalm 23, he's saying, I'm going to chase after you. I'm going to pursue you. This reminds me of Psalm 139 where it says, I've gone before you and I've come behind you. I've hemmed you in completely. And sisters, this is our hope. And hope is a big deal. I told you I work with educators and teachers and I work with students. And hope is a funny thing to teach and measure in school. But what we've discovered is that hope drives a student's belief that they can learn, grow, change, and succeed. It's actually hope that fuels the belief that they can accomplish and do hard things. And educators believe and researchers show that um, hope is actually a key to academic success and overall student flourishing. And so what I want to say to us in the same way, hope functions in the same way. It gives us a belief that by God working in us and through us, we can grow, we can change, we can succeed. It gives us an ability to thrive and flourish even in the midst of opposition, even in the process of becoming less broken and more whole. And I say that because what we live out is what we're going to model to those around us. And so if you are brokering hope in your own life, if you are modeling living in a posture of hope in your own life, that is what you're going to release in your community, in your spaces. That's what you're going to extend to your children. That's what you're going to extend to your friends. That's what you're going to extend to your community. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, it tells us what hope is. It says, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. And so I point this out because our hope is rooted in our faith, and our faith is rooted in our hope. And what hope is really rooted in is our faith, and our faith is a confidence that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. It's a confident expectation that God has promised to be with us, that he will strengthen us, and that he is faithful. And I want to say it again, that our points of pain are actually what become our purpose. That our assignment is going to flow from these places. And I feel like this is our hope, that nothing in life is being wasted. That God wants to use all of those moments in our life for our own good and for the benefit of others. I think of 2 Corinthians 1 verse 4. It says that God comforts us 
in all of our troubles. Not some of our troubles, but he comforts us in all of our troubles. And he says, I comfort you so that you can go out and comfort others in whatever kind of trouble they have. And so God is like comforting us. He's restoring us. He's leading us. He's guiding us. And we get to live this out in community. We get to inspire, encourage, and equip others to do the same. And so as the Lord redeems what the enemy has taken from you, it becomes your testimony, a powerful testimony to who God is and what he does in and through us. In closing, I'm going to ask you a few questions in just a second. So be sure and have a pad of paper and a pen or pencil with you. And I would love for you to jot down some questions. And these are questions that if you're in a small group, you can discuss together. Or you can have a phone call, a Zoom call, a social distance walk with a friend and kind of unpack and process and enter into this conversation. Because again, my goal for today in this conversation is to speak authentically about pain points, to press into the idea of resistance, and to address unforgiveness, despair, <laughs> with the antidote of hope. And so anchoring us into Psalm 23. And so my hope is that you will be able to recall, reflect, and then engage in conversations with the people in your sphere of influence um, as a way to encourage and build up your community as you begin to do your own work. Again, it's not just for your benefit, but it's for the benefit of those around you. And so I want to invite you to stay in the process of working through unforgiveness and despair, to anchor yourself in hope, and to recognize where you are at, this is your self-awareness piece, so that you can manage your emotions, feelings, and pain points so that they do not manage you. And so my friends, the questions I want to leave you with are number one, what resonated with you from what was shared today? What resonated with you from what was shared today? Number two, how have you viewed resistance? Is it good? Is it bad? Number two, how have you, re how have you viewed resistance? And number three, what new perspective did you gain from Psalm 23? What new perspective did you gain from Psalm 23? And last question that you can unpack and again, you can do this with someone else. You can do this with you in your journal. Um, number four, where are you at in the process of unforgiveness, despair, and hope? And explain that. Last question one more time. Where are you at in the process of unforgiveness, despair, and hope? Lord, I thank you for everyone who gathered here today. I ask that your spirit would bubble over and flow out, that we would sense your tangible presence, that you would work in and through each one of us. Lord, I speak your word of hope and encouragement to each one of us, that we would continue to have the courage to enter into the process of becoming less broken and more whole, and that in this process that we would bring glory to your name. Thank you for the work that you're doing in us, and that will flow out of us into our communities. In Jesus' name, amen.